welcome to another episode of Tenacity with Sonia C, the podcast where innovation meets expertise. I'm your host, Sonia C, and today we're embarking on a journey filled with leadership lessons, entrepreneurial insights, and investment strategies. In today's episode, we're joined by Jeff Barnes, the CEO of the Angel Investors Network. Jeff's unique background as a U.S. Navy nuclear power plant operator and diver has shaped his remarkable approach to risk management and leadership. We'll dive into Jeff's transitioning from naval depths to the peaks of venture capital, unraveling the threads of his experiences that have led him to become a guiding force in the world of entrepreneurship and investment. Expect to gain valuable insights on success and mastering the art of making strategic decisions. So buckle up for an enlightening conversation that's sure to inspire and inform. Let's get started. Welcome to the show, Jeff. It's nice to have you here with us today. Thank you, Sonia. I appreciate you having me here. Um, okay, so I went through your profile and you have like all the stuff that you've done. So I'm really excited about today's uh, conversation. Uh, so the first thing I want to get into is how did your time as a U.S. Navy nuclear power plant operator and diver shape your approach to leadership and risk management? <laughs> um, <laughs> great question. So how did it shape it? Approach to leadership. Well, I'll tell you this: that military leadership does not work in the civilian world. That's for sure. <laughs> um, you can't just tell somebody to jump, expect them to ask how high. And you know, when when you're working on a submarine, you know, leadership is dependent upon you know understanding how how good everybody is around you and knowing that everybody has a certain level of professionalism and training, so that you can just tell them what to do and expect a result versus a lot of times in business, when it comes down to it, leadership is gauging if somebody's even qualified to be able to do a job and then delegating and helping them along the way, as opposed to maybe micromanaging like a lot of people like to do. I don't think that's a really good leadership style or tactic, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and in the military, you know, er everything is, I'm not gonna say it's reactionary, but whenever you have an emergency, you become very reactionary and leadership styles tend to come straight to the surface in a an emergency situation, right? Mm. And a lot of people in the military do not get trained per se on leadership until they've been a leader. So it's a lot of trial by fire. And I learned very quickly on that my leadership tactic, if you will, is to tell somebody what I want as a result and try and get out of the way. And turns out if you don't have a good team around you, that doesn't work out very well because you can tell them the results you want, but if they have no idea how to achieve it, it doesn't really do you any good. So I would say that leadership is one of those learned skills that you are constantly evolving and working on yourself. Because mm -hmm. if you're not working on yourself, then you're not going to be effective at helping other people around you uh, be their best self. Right. So can you share a critical lesson you learned while operating under extreme conditions in the submarine? Oh, Jeez. Um, I mean, there's several, right? But I'll give you an example. When you're a scuba diver, and I used to dive on our boat, and we would go look for bombs and, and things like that on the hull every time you come in. It's called a security swim. And then you're also looking at the propeller, making sure nothing's messed up. There's nothing what's called fouling or clogging any of the intakes and things like that. Well, when you're a, a, a submariner, I mean, a scuba diver, 
you don't have anybody around you. There's not somebody right next to you necessarily that you can talk to. There's not even a phone. You're not talking to anybody else. So you are really down there underwater all by yourself. And in some cases you're in a place that's almost pitch black and you can't see anything. And for anybody who, you know, maybe gets a little bit afraid of swimming in the open ocean or swimming around potential sharks and things like that, let alone being in the dark and also having all of those things happen at the same time, you know, you can find yourself really quickly in a situation that's very uh, concerning, I guess is a good way to put it, somewhat dangerous for certain people. And you learn that if you can't keep your wits about you, even in the face of adversity and in the face of extreme emergency or duress when things are not going well, right? So maybe your scuba tank gets, gets hung up on something and you get stuck or, you know, whatever it might be, you have no one else to rely on. So your training is, you have to be able to draw on that training and realize that you have to settle yourself, center yourself, get back to basics and then get the job done and, and fix the situation without hoping that somebody's going to come to your rescue. And that's really the big point of making that story is that I had a situation several times uh, where I'm underwater and, you know, we run into something that you weren't expecting to see. And now you have to fix the problem and you have to fix the problem without somebody being there to help you. And you have to know what to do and you have to know what to do in, a, in the instant. You can't just wait and maybe come back to it later. It's like this needs to be solved right now. And so I'd say that one of the big lessons that I learned while being in the military was being able to draw on the training and the experience that I had. And be able to manage myself and my own emotions so that I could see myself and our our crew through whatever potential problem we had in spite of having, you know, emergency or exigent circumstances, if you will. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you go from serving the military and, to becoming a risk management consultant and helping entrepreneurs develop strategic partnerships with Fortune 500 companies. And then we jump over to 2018 and you took on a role as the CEO uh, at Angel Investors Network to help more entrepreneurs uh, bring their products, services, and technology to market as an advisor, mentor, coach, and venture fund, fund manager. So what were the biggest challenges you faced when you took over the CEO of the Angel, of the Angel Investor Network? Yeah, so you've probably heard that saying, you know, a lot of people might have 30 years of experience or do they really have one year of experience 30 times, right? <laughs> and one of the challenges that we had at AIN was that we had a very narrow subset um, skill set, if you will, and it hadn't been developed fully and we hadn't turned it into a real business. So we had this idea of a business, but we didn't have a real business. And one of the biggest challenges was understanding how do we fit in in the marketplace, right? When Angel Investors Network started back in 1997 as the first online nationwide angel group, it didn't exist. So it was very easy to attract members and get um, customers coming in and get people coming to our events. And that was, that was straightforward. But when all of a sudden you have angel investor networks everywhere and you have these um, incubators and, you know, all of these different hubs for people to go to as entrepreneurs and investors, you then have find yourself in a situation where you have to identify, well, what's unique about us? Where do we really fit in the market? And, you know, in a sense, I became an entrepreneur. I definitely became an entrepreneur of my own, um, taking our company and figuring out where do we fit and how do we fit in and how do we provide value to the marketplace? Because I think that is a lot of entrepreneurs do believe that they can add value. Otherwise they wouldn't become an entrepreneur. But it's does the person on the other side of the receiving end see the same thing you see? And are they willing to pay you for that? 
So really going back to you know the studs and redrawing the business plan and how we we're going to do all of that made what was a, a really good exercise for us. It started making us a lot of money in 2019. And then unfortunately, our, our entire business was predicated on live events and then COVID changed all of that. So we had to reinvent ourselves again. So I would say that was the biggest challenge. It was like just reinventing to figure out how do you fit in the current market? And what kind of, is there a particular uh, uh, like line or industry that you look for when you're looking for startups to invest in? No, we're, we're industry agnostic. We have a few companies or industries that we'll stay away from uh, for a number of different reasons, um, whether it's moral, ethical issues, or just the fact that we want our investors to have a chance of succeeding. So like pharmaceuticals is one of those ones where it can be incredibly lucrative. There's no doubt about it but also incredibly challenging. And as we've seen with some of these companies, it can also be morally and ethically bankrupt. If he, So even though you might've made money, if the CEO or the chairman's going to jail for you know failure to disclose and things like that, that's not really where you wanna be, right? Yeah. Um, so we try to stay away from industries where there's gonna be that potential downside, if you will. But for the most part, what we're really looking for are scalable company so a company that can actually go to a billion dollar valuation or beyond and that's harder than a lot of people think every entrepreneur thinks they have their billion dollar idea but turning that into a reality is very very challenging and so that, that means it has to have a massive market that it can address and has to have a massive problem that it can solve within that market mm -hmm. and that in and of itself is really difficult for a lot of entrepreneurs to um, to ascertain or to really speak to and help other people understand so those are the really big things that we're looking for is the exponential growth possibility, solving a really big problem. And then, of course, along the way, can we make money doing it? Like that's that's goes without saying for the most part. Right. What strategies have you found most effective when you're fostering innovation and growing in the companies you've advised? Yeah, this is a it's a tough question to answer because a lot of people would like to say that innovation is one of those things that, you know, either just strikes you like a bolt of lightning and you figure it out and it's all well and good. Or there's the other school of thought, which is like the uh, the design workshops, and we're thinking through problems, we're figuring that out, and that's that, that works as well. So there's no one size fits all as far as I'm concerned when it comes to innovation, because sometimes you will have those people who are very prescient and for lack, they can almost see the future for lack of a better term, right? Because in their world, this problem that they're seeing is so incredibly powerful that they want to solve that. You know, mm -hmm. you can go back to Henry Ford when he first started about the automobile. You can talk about um, Tesla and Edison creating, you know, the electrical grid and Westinghouse. You can go, you know, to, to modern day with, you know, the social media platforms or PayPal or any of these things. Before they existed, no one even had a thought that it was necessary, right? So you can't even use that, that mantra of, okay, well, I'm going to go start a business that solves a problem because the problem didn't even exist. Not really, Right. Um, right. you know, like what problem did Facebook really solve? And in the very beginning, it didn't really, it just created a hub for users and people to get together and eventually it grew and it started solving problems. Um, same thing with Tesla, you know, what problem did it really solve? Well, it didn't, a lot of people might say, but it created new awareness of a market and an industry that allowed us to scale into a certain area. Right. So when it comes to innovation, I wouldn't say there's a one size fits all, but I will say that there are the, the crazy ones that are on the far end of the spectrum that 
if they haven't figured out how to articulate their vision or their idea, then it may just be, you know, pie in the sky hopes and dreams. Mm -hmm. If on the other hand, they find a way to take this and articulate it and then find a market that it's going to fit in and can solve that problem or solve an, an issue that somebody's facing in a certain industry, then it can become very innovative. Um, but I will say the worst thing you could possibly do is focus group a problem to death and then, you know, go with a solution oriented approach and just ask, would you like to have this thing? That, that never works out. Okay. So let's, let's talk about startups and, and some founders, um, just switching it up a little bit. So I, I, I deal a lot with, um, with founders and I have a lot of friends that are founders or entrepreneurs and with the VC world coming up in the last couple of years, everyone seems to think that if they have an idea, they can sort of get it off the ground and then go find a VC to, to invest in them and they can grow their business. And I'm finding more and more, particularly in tech, because that's the space that I'm in, it, for a while, it seemed really easy to find investors. Now it's getting a little bit harder, but you had companies that were operating for, you know, two to five years um, just dependent on investment, no revenue at any point. So what are some of the key factors that you consider when deciding when to invest in a startup? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and it's, again, it's no one size fits all, right? Because there are going to be certain companies where the path to revenue and profits is a lot clearer. And if that's the case, and you can see that, then it might be easier to make an earlier investment decision and then watch them for a year or two years and see how well they progress down that path to making money. And if that happens, then it's easier to do a follow-on round because you're seeing them making this traction. Mm. On the other hand, there, there are those businesses that are very R&D intensive and they require a very long runway and there is no path to profitability. And if that's the case, then you're looking at somebody who, from an investment perspective, the investor needs to be very well versed in that industry to understand those nuances. Because if somebody says, yeah, I have this incredible business, this incredible technology and idea, I have no idea how to make money with it, um, which sadly, that's the way a lot of entrepreneurs actually are. They just want to create the cool thing. And they probably have a good reason for doing that, but they don't know how to make money. That's generally where we come in. We show them how to make money with it. Um, but then the, what they're looking to do is build up enterprise value and you build up enterprise value by enough people using or leveraging your ideas, your technology, your products, your services, right? So if you think about a, a peer technology play where you're inventing some sort of code, let's just yeah. use, you know, computer code as an example that does one very, very specific thing such as, you know, I'm just making stuff up here, but it makes sure that credit cards never end up on the, on the dark web. Right. And you have a way to track that and verify that. Well, how do you make money with that? Right. Because yeah. consumers maybe aren't paying for that because they don't see it as a big enough threat. They're like, oh, yeah, well, if it's a threat, I'll just tell my credit card company that it didn't, you know, I didn't make that charge and they'll refund it for me. So why would I spend $10, $20 a month, whatever it is? So then you have this really great idea in this technology and you've determined there is a need for this because there are credit cards on the dark web and people are losing billions every year doing this. Well, then you have to go and find the stakeholders. Who are the stakeholders that are going to be most affected by this? So in this case, it might be the credit card companies. It might be the merchant processors. It might be the insurance companies that have insurance on them, right? And so that's a good example of a way that we don't know how it's going to make money yet. It's really valuable. We think there's a lot of value here. And what your goal is to do 
is to get mass adoption. And so in order to get mass adoption, you have to you have to market it. You have to get it out there to as many people as you possibly can. You have to promote it however you can. And so the investor then looks at it and says, OK, well, if they don't understand that world at all, they're probably not going to understand how in the world you can increase the value and become profitable. Right. On the other hand, if you get somebody who is really entrenched in an industry like that and they're dealing with this and this is their pain point and they also have capital behind them in some way, shape or form, whether through themselves, a fund, they're an LP, whatever, they will be willing to take a bigger risk on that because they can see the opportunity at the end of the rainbow. Mm -hmm. And so, like I said, it, it, it really comes down to, is there an easy path to profitability where somebody can make an investment and see that in a few years, the company's going to get this kind of revenue, this kind of profits and have that kind of valuation. Therefore, I can go get a liquidity event. Or is it more of a strategic investment? Because I know once there's adoption at some point, then the enterprise value will really take off. So it's it's difficult to say, but I'd say those are the kind of lenses you look through. Right. So what about like disruptive technology that's, you know, ahead of its time? I've seen this a lot in my in my personal career where someone has an idea uh, for a product or, or something that's um, very disruptive in the sense of the way it's being done now has been done for the past 100 years. This is an example. Mm -hmm. And the technology or the idea that they have is going to completely disrupt a particular industry, but it's going to take a long time for that specific industry to adapt. How? What advice do you have for founders or entrepreneurs who want to get into that space and eventually want to get investors, but it's going to take a long time to get there because it's so disruptive? Yeah, that's... That is a very difficult place for a lot of entrepreneurs to be in because, again, they're inventors. They are the ones that are coming up with great ideas and they haven't figured out how to make money with it. And if you haven't figured out how to make money with it and it's so early that no one's willing to take a flyer on you and invest in you, you've still got to eat, right? Yeah. Um, and so what we encourage people to do is use your entrepreneurial endeavor as a side hustle and Keep developing and keep working on as much as you possibly can, but you've got to be able to support yourself because here's one of the biggest mistakes a lot of early stage founders will make. They'll come up with a great idea and they think it's a great idea and they've tested with a few people and other people think it's a great idea. But all the people are talking to, even though they think it's a great idea, they're not going to invest, right? And VCs will do this all the time. They're like, yeah, it's a great idea, actually, but come back to us when you've achieved 300% year over year growth and you're hitting a million dollar ARR, right? Then we'll invest in you, right? Because that's outside their thesis otherwise. So if you've got to get there, well, you've got to survive along the way. So you do a few things. This is where angel investors can come in. If you can get a few people that can help to put this the money in front of you just to keep the doors open and keep things going, that's great. Mm -hmm. But what we really encourage people to do is find some sort of you know way to just pay the bills for right now, whether that's gig economy or you know, work in another job or something like that, whatever you can do, but don't give up on that passion, right? Because it is hard. And anyone who tells you it's not hard and it doesn't take a long time, either got lucky or is lying, right? Because this is a lot of work to come up with a blue ocean strategy. You have to first change minds and opinions before they'll even be open and receptive to a potential investment, let alone seeing it into a real business. Yeah. So what you've got to do along the way is you're networking. You are going out there. I mean, most people that are creating a new technology, they might have one use case in mind. And this, is, this has been my career for the last decade or so. They might have a really good use case in mind. But the problem is that that use case may not be an industry they're familiar with. 
as familiar with as they might think they are. And so the idea falls on deaf ears. Mm -hmm. Well, if that's the only industry you're going after and you're just like, I'm going to force my way in there and they're eventually going to see my brilliance and eventually going to buy it or invest, you know, you're, you're trying to push a rope uphill with your nose. It's not worth it. So what I encourage people to do is continuously get out there and network. Go find other entrepreneurship communities. Go find other angel investor communities. Go to different incubators and things like that and get connected with other people because other people will see the brilliance in the idea eventually if you get really good at articulating it again. And they can see where it could be really helpful in this industry, which you may never have thought of. And mm -hmm. that's when you start getting that traction because there's more than one way to skin a cat, as they say. And so if you just try and pigeonhole your technology too early, then it could be in a pigeonhole where it dies and you don't really want that. Right. So let's go the other way. What happens when a founder loves his idea and never really quite launches it? Because I, I do, you've, you've mentioned this a couple of times where uh, founders are inventors and um, they're sort of stuck in the, oh, I just got to build this one other thing and then I'll take it to market. And then, oh, no, 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 wait, like I'm going to pivot now. Like I know a couple of people that have pivoted like a hundred times and they still haven't launched a product and it's yeah. been like five, six years and they're spending all their personal money on these startups and they're not really going anywhere and they put them through incubators and all that stuff. At what point do you tell an, uh, a founder, okay, you need to stop? <laughs> I know that's yeah. a hard question. Like yeah. it's hard, but like, I think sometimes I think it's going to be important for our community to really grasp this what you're going to say about this. Yeah, I hate to say it, but us as, you know, when you're a visionary entrepreneur, sometimes you can't see the wall right in front of you, right? You're looking 10 yeah. yards past the wall and you just see that if we can just somehow get through this wall, eventually, you know, the grass is greener, life's great. But sometimes the wall is getting built bigger and bigger and bigger in front of you because whether somebody else is coming to market, I've seen this happen too many times. It takes them too long to develop it. Mm -hmm. And as a result, somebody else with, a, with more money, more resources built a similar mousetrap. And as a result, it's kind of made them obsolete or, you know, somebody's come in and designed an alternative to what you were doing and they were able to get market share faster. So mm -hmm. what we really, there are times where I tell somebody to kill an idea, right? Because right. the idea is just like, it doesn't make sense. You've tried as many different times as you possibly can. So kill the idea. And that doesn't mean kill the dream. Right? That's right. really important for people to understand is that entrepreneurship is a journey. It's it's not a destination. And anyone who's a true-blooded entrepreneur is going to want to come up with new ideas, right? That's that's what a visionary entrepreneur, that's almost how you define them. They have 10 ideas before breakfast, right? So the problem is not generally the fact that they are not good at coming up with an idea or solving a problem or seeing a way to do this thing. The problem is they don't know how to implement. Mm. Okay? And so what we encourage people to do is if you have a great idea, then the only way you're going to know is by talking to it about with a bunch of people. Yeah. And some entrepreneurs will say, well, I'm not telling anybody about this because they'll steal my idea. And yeah. that's about the most myopic thing you can say. We're not saying go tell your trade secrets or go reveal your intellectual property or your patents or anything like that. What we're saying is talk to people about what you're doing. And if you find that there's just like no, either nobody is receptive to it at all, it could mean one of two things. And unfortunately, it's hard to tell which one is that you're really on to something, right? And you're just ahead of your time. 
The second is that there's absolutely no need for it at all, right? Generally speaking, it's the latter, right? It's very seldom that people come up with such a profound, incredible idea that even though they talk to a whole bunch of really smart people, none of them are getting it and it's still going to take off. Most of the time that means either you're talking to the wrong people or you're not talking about the right way or it just is not needed, right? So when it gets to that point where somebody has been struggling for years and years and years, right? I'm not talking a few months, right? It has to go on for a long time. Oh yeah, for sure. Then you just have to say, listen, maybe it's either not the right time or you've got to pivot a little bit on how you're trying to approach this, this problem, the solution. And maybe the technology can be broken apart or it can be reused in a different area altogether. So it is a tough conversation to have, but entrepreneurs do need to, at some point, acknowledge the fact that maybe I need to try something different, right? And if they can, they, they need to be honest with themselves and set a line in the, in the sand at some point and say, if I haven't achieved X number of traction by X date, right? And that doesn't necessarily mean sales, right? It could mean interested parties, interested um, potential stakeholders or investors. It could mean sales. It could mean user generation, whatever. Then you have to say, okay, I'm just going to put it on the shelf for right now. We'll revisit it maybe in a year or something like that. Yeah. So what happens when you come across a startup that has a fantastic idea? The founder is an inventor, but they don't have good or great or no basic business skills. So mm-hmm. you come up to, I'm sure you've come up to this. So great idea, great business potential, but the founder is not a business person. What do you do? That's like 90% of entrepreneurs right there. <laughs> That's what you I know? thought. You know, when I say inventor, yeah, I, I generally mean visionary, right? They're coming up with ideas. It's not even necessarily that they're tinkering and putting the thing together. They just have a million ideas. And I hate to say it, but entrepreneurs are some of the most stubborn breed of people out there. Yeah. They have so many ideas, they're very unwilling to listen to other people's. And they also, unfortunately, have this kind of blind leading the blind mentality as well, right? You get a bunch of really smart entrepreneurs that are very visionary in a room together. They all love to talk about their ideas. They all love to give somebody else advice on what to do, but they almost never take anybody else's advice, right? And the best thing that they can do is they can find someone called an integrator, right? This is a a term that Gino Wickman made popular in his book, Traction, which is the visionary entrepreneur has the 10 ideas by breakfast. They have all these different great ideas about how to change the world, how to make it better, how to develop this, how to do this. But they have to realize at some point it has to become a business, either that or it's just a hobby, right? In order to make it a business, you have to have that person who likes to run businesses, And you have to partner with somebody like that. Now, when you're early, early on, if you find that person who can do it for equity, that's great. Once you get to a point where you can pay that person even better. And the reason I say that is because a mentor of mine told me a long time ago, never give up equity to something that you can hire. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if you can find a CEO who you can hire to run the business, And you can actually pay them, whether that's through stock options or warrants or potential equity, you know, that's that's totally fine. But if you can pay money, guess what? That's really good because it doesn't lock you into a long-term relationship that may or may not work out. Because that's the other downside of this is that you do need somebody who can run a business, 
but you may not hit it off after a year, two years in the trenches. And so you don't want to lock yourself into a long-term struggle with somebody that you can't get unmarried from or divorced rather, right? Yeah, that's a good point. I like that. So um, could you share an example of a company you helped scale and what made it successful as a venture? Yeah. One of my favorites, <clears throat> excuse me, was Augury. And Augury came to us when they were very, very early on, hadn't raised more than a, maybe a couple million dollars. This was back in 2012, 13. And they came to our group and they were looking for strategic investors. And that's what that term means is that you're looking for something more than just money. And at the time I worked at this big insurance company and we vetted their technology and their technology was really cool. It was acoustic um, rhythms and essentially vibrational analysis for, and they use predictive analytics and some AI at the point to help identify if, if machinery was about to break long before anybody else knew. Now that has a very unique value in a very niche industry. You know, it's not like, you're driving down the street in your car and all of a sudden your check engine light goes on and, oh, I need to go get this fixed. Like, it's not that common. It's more like you're running this piece of equipment that costs maybe $5 million to operate and or replace rather. And if something goes wrong with it, it's also going to cost you $20 million, $30 million in business because if this thing goes down, your entire plant goes down, right? So it was a very unique um, sliver of an industry that needed this kind of solution. And what they had to do was they had to prove that their technology was better than all the other charts and graphs and historical information that was out there so that they could then prove if you use our technology, you're going to make or save a lot more money. And for them, what I have to say, they were very, very smart about it because they didn't just try and go really wide in the industry. They went very, very narrow. So narrow that they came to us as a reinsurance company and said, you guys have an equipment and technology arm of your business, an engineering side of your business. Please, we want to work with you. Let's figure this out. We ended up doing over the course of a couple rounds, $17 million investment in them. They've gone on to do over $300 million and they're worth you know, well over a billion at this point because wow. they started with a very specific focus of who they wanted to service. Okay. So what principles do you emphasize when mentoring young professionals and entrepreneurs? You know, perseverance is the biggest one. Um, this is not an easy path in life. And I know a number of entrepreneurial people that have kind of walked into this not knowing how long and hard it was going to be and then slinked back to a job eventually because they just couldn't handle it. Mm. You know, we see all of these stories of people that do amazing things and we try to emulate them. And that's one of the worst things we could possibly do because it takes away from your authentic self and who you really are. And part of the journey of being an entrepreneur is attracting people to you, right? Whether right. that's your team, your potential investors, and ultimately customers. And you can't do that if you're inauthentic. So authenticity is really, really important. But then having that perseverance, that grit, knowing full well that you are going to fall flat on your face several times. You might cry yourself to sleep. You might find yourself eating top ramen on a regular basis because you don't want to spend any extra money going where it means telling people that you're too busy to go hang out. When in reality, you maybe can't even afford the Uber to get wherever the party is. Right. And those are things that a lot of people, they can't stomach. You know, they, they just can't deal with that. 
you know, being an entrepreneur means going to bed with your ideas and waking up with them. And that takes its toll. Everybody who has been an entrepreneur, it takes a lot of a lot out of them. But if you truly believe that you can succeed, if you surround yourself with the right people, you have that grit and that mentality that you're going to succeed no matter what. And then you are willing to just get up day after day and, you know, put your shoes on and go to work, not like slink off and, you know, watch TV when it gets hard, but actually get to work. Then you're going to be more likely to succeed, right? But so many people go in with rose colored glasses thinking that money is going to flow freely and nothing can be further from the truth. Yeah. So I have one last question for you. If a founder wants to create a company with the intention to eventually exit, meaning they don't want to be in it for the long run, but it is a good idea, what are some of the things that they should think about early on when they're starting so that they can be prepared for a good exit? Yeah, that's that's a really important question, if not one of the most important questions for an entrepreneur to ask. So, you know, I like that one. The most important thing for any entrepreneur who's looking to exit their company, and we invest in and we buy companies as well, we don't just invest in startups, is the company and the success of the company cannot be dependent upon one person. So an entrepreneur starts a company and they're able to grow that to several million dollars on their own backs and they persevered and they pushed through and they built a community of people who love them and buy their products because of them, because of that personality. Well, if that personality leaves, mm. then do they take all of that energy, all that charisma, all the customers with them? And people who are going to invest in or acquire a company need to be cognizant of that. And they are, right? You can't pull the wool over somebody's eyes when they're doing due diligence at that level. They know what drives the company. Now, do does every investor make mistakes? Of course they do. But I'll tell you the mistake they never want to make is investing in something that looks like a company, but isn't really. Okay. Mm. So everything you can do to build a company that survives without you is what you should be doing. So whether that's training, onboarding processes, um, standard operating procedures, systems, automation, all of that, build a company that does not need you to be there every single day. And you will have a much higher chance of exiting for a valuation you're happy with. That's a very interesting answer. I was not expecting that. But now that you say it, that totally makes sense. Yeah, I, I mean, I'd love to hear what, you, what your thought was. What, what do you think I was going to say? Um, I thought you were going to say, you know, make sure that you have the right co-founder and the right shares in place so that if you get, um, you know, if an investor comes in, there's a you're not stuck with people that you don't want to move on to the next phase. Because I do find like with startups, at the early stages, they give up a lot of shares just because they need bodies and they need people to do the work. And then when they, they do find a, an investor, they're like, well, we don't really want to take these people with us, but they're kind of stuck. I never yeah. really thought about, you know, the founder becomes the face of the company, which you're right. And then that could actually end up being a negative instead of a it can be, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And all those things you said are important too, right? How you structure your cap table how you get your investor or your your um, employee stock option programs going. All of that stuff is important, right? But yeah. most of those things can be fixed, right? That's, the yeah. thing that's really, really hard to fix is if the company is 100% dependent on you, right? So 
you, using technology entrepreneurs as an example, most of the IP is in their head, right? Mm. And if the IP is all in their head and they get hit by a bus tomorrow, there's no more business, right? Yeah. So those are things that we look at when we're investing in companies is like, how well is this company actually structured for long-term growth and success? Oh, I love that. Um, and we're running out of time. That was a really interesting conversation. I, I loved your, your last answer. I think that's going to be really valuable um, to our audience. So uh, before we wrap up, Jeff, can you uh, share a little bit about how people can reach out to you? What are you up to next? I know you're like, you're always doing all these different things. Can you just tell us a little bit about what's next for you, how people can reach out to you? Uh, you have a, you're also an author, right? So can you share a little bit about that and people where, where people can go and get all of your resources and things like that? Yeah, absolutely. So we try to make as much available at angelinvestorsnetwork.com available for free for entrepreneurs. So there's there's quizzes and assessments and things like that that you can take and you know, courses that we we provide. Um, what's next? Total glo global domination, right? That's that's <laughs> what we're going after. So Angel Investors Network's been around since 1997. And in the last almost three decades, so many things have changed with raising capital and entrepreneurship. It used to be a dirty word. Now it's, you know, if you're not an entrepreneur, you're almost like, you know, what are you doing with your life is what a lot of people <laughs> look at it, right? Um, so what we're doing is we're democratizing angel investing and access to capital around the world. And we're going to be doing that by building chapters all over the world that allow people to come in and pitch their ideas, get coaching, get training, get mentorship, build a local community in the cities and towns that people live in. Um, because right now, a lot of this is it's centralized in certain areas, right? There'll be certain people to tell you if you're not in Silicon Valley, don't even bother trying to do a startup. And yeah. I think that's about as ridiculous as it can be because, you know, knowledge has been democratized through the internet and why shouldn't, you know, raising capital and investing in companies be as well. So we're going to be um, scaling up our company globally in the next several years by building these chapters out. People can learn more about that and own their own chapter if they wanted to by going to our website as well. And then the books I wrote. So the first one was actually about raising capital, but it was really meant for the investors that have all this money in their retirement plans. Um, at the time that I wrote that book, which was 2012, there was... Uh, I think it was 12 or 13 trillion dollars trillion with a t in retirement plans here in the united states alone and that money was stuck in stock markets and i wrote that on the tail end of the financial crisis so a lot of people had lost a lot of money and you know they didn't have any other way to get back so we wrote the book to go show people how to invest in real estate and private equity using their retirement plans and stuff that's what that book's about and then my other one, All Hands on Deck, is all about how U.S. Navy submariners structure, systemize, and optimize for success. And it's all about instilling military principles and discipline into your business to help it grow. So those are just a little, couple little things about me. And yeah, I'd love to help out anybody that we can that comes over to our website. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed this conversation. I'm positive it's going to be really valuable to our listeners. Uh, anything you want to leave us off with? No, I really appreciate Sonia. I think the only thing I would really say is that, um, you know, when, when it gets hard being an entrepreneur, just remember that people have suffered a lot worse than you probably are. And, you know, that maybe is not a consolation for a lot of folks, but if they were able to come back and claw back from whatever problem or hell they went through, then you probably will be able to as well. 
Awesome. I love that. Thank you so much, Jeff. I really appreciate you ha having the time, taking the time to come on and, and share your journey with us. Absolutely, Sonia. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me here. Thank you, Jeff, for sharing your expertise and journey with us today. This is an episode that with a lot of valuable takeaways. To our listeners, I hope today's episode has inspired you. Remember, the future belongs to those who embrace change and innovation with tenacity. Keep striving, keep innovating, and most importantly, stay tenacious in your pursuits. Thank you for tuning in, and I look forward to bringing you more inspiring conversations in our upcoming episodes. This is Sonia signing off, but always remember to chase your dreams with tenacity.